What's with you guys in the homoerotic references, by the way? That's just how we roll, man. Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht, who is one year older today, aren't you? I am. Today is my birthday. So you're like 35. <laughs> I keep on forgetting how old I am, but I believe I'm 47. That's, uh, that's a sign of being old is when you no longer know how old you are. I, all I know is I'm approaching 50, and that seems significant. Um, I'm, I'm, it's not even a joke. I'm contemplating buying a motorcycle. Um, which I think is a fitting thing to do. You're going to fucking die, man. These, <laughs> these things are death traps. I know, but they're so cool. Yeah, no, that's right. So, uh, Yoel, before, uh, you know, I, I, I need to talk a little bit more about my birthday. So uh, you got me a gift, right? Uh, it's just the gift of my company. Nothing? Zero? <laughs> no, I'm terrible. I travel the world, yeah. get you a present. You brought I'm, me back like... a wooden penis and I got you nothing. Yeah, no, <laughs> The I'm anniversary sorry. of my birth, I got zero. It should have been, I'll, I'll, you'll get your dick in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I look forward to that. Excellent. Um, so you are drinking your birthday beer today. I am drinking my birthday beer, uh, which I, I want to talk about, but I think first we should tell our listeners that we've got a very special guest. Yes. Would you like to introduce our speaker? I do. So we have uh, the one and only uh, Professor John Jost. Um, and uh, I'm super excited. I know you are too, Yoel, because, uh, well, uh, John is incredibly influential in the field of social psychology and political psychology. And I would, I think it's fair to say he's shaped, you know, multiple lines of research in each of those areas. And that's, you know, uh, quite an accomplishment. Um, and we tried to meet with him uh, a few months back and, you know, because of my sabbatical, I uh, couldn't always work it out, but I'm so glad to be here today. Um, so uh, John Jost is a professor of psychology and politics co-director of the Center for Social and Political Behavior, and the head of the Social Justice Lab, all at New York University. Um, he received his MA in philosophy from the University of Cincinnati in 1993, and his PhD in social psychology uh, from Yale in 1995. His research centers on the topics of stereotyping, prejudice, political ideology, and system justification theory, which he co-developed with Mazreen Banaji. Uh, John has published over 200 journal articles and book chapters and edited four books, uh, including uh, Social and Psychological Bases of Ideology and System Justification. Um, so, you know, if you, if you check out John and we'll put, you know, his, uh, his website up on the show notes, you'll see he's won, in, you know, every possible award from our field and, you know, uh, uh, other fields like political psychology uh, most uh, explicitly. Um, but I want to name two that are very, uh, I think, prestigious. Uh, he won the Gordon Alport Intergroup Relations Prize, and he won the Society of Experimental Social Psychology Career Trajectory Award. Um, now, this is super cool. Just this past fall um, in 2018, uh, John received an honorary doctorate from the University of Buenos Aires in Argentina. Um, and as a bonus for us, for us Canadians, um, John was actually born right here in Toronto. So uh, welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. It's great to be here. Um, I, I just, you know, one quick question on the Toronto thing. So do you feel at all in any part of you Canadian? Well, my parents uh, are Americans, were Americans. My dad was in graduate school at the University of Toronto in philosophy uh, when I was born. So my sister and I were both born in Toronto. 
but we only lived in Canada for two and a half years and then moved back to the, my parents moved back to the States to Cincinnati, Ohio, actually. But I do feel connected to, to Toronto, um, in part because it's my birthplace, in part because we have uh, extended family members and friends in the area. My parents grew up in Rochester, New York, which is not so far from Toronto. Um, and so I was uh, happy to see the Toronto Raptors winning the NBA Finals. I, I guess you guys were too. Congratulations on the victory, as well as happy birthday to you, Mickey. Oh, thank you, John. More, you know, this this birthday uh, wish is more than I got from UL, so thank you. Um, but also, yeah, the the, the, the Raptors thing, I was cool. Yoel and I both went to the uh, Raptors parade. Wonderful. Uh, the, yeah, the most exciting moment for me was seeing this guy, uh, like on the bus, who's not a player. His name is Drake. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> Another famous Canadian. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of kind of strange and surreal to see him. Um, I bet. I guess it was God's plan, right? Yes. Yes. Um, all right. So uh, you know, I'm it's it's, it's two o'clock or two thirty here for us, and uh, my birthday, and I'm so excited to, to engage in some afternoon beer drinking. Yeah, you've you've earned it. So, what fancy beer do you have over there? Yeah. So, the last episode, I, I warned you, Yuel, that I would not be sharing this one, and I'm going to keep my my promise. Um, so, this is something called Farmageddon. It's from my favorite uh, brewery, Bellwoods Brewery, right here in Toronto. And the reason I don't want to share it is because uh, it's a fifteen dollar bottle, so quite expensive. Um, and I think it's so expensive because it was it's um it's bottle conditioned. Uh, but I guess before it's conditioned in the bottle, it was aged in um, wine barrels, in Niagara Riesling grape barrels. So uh, that's why the price. And also, man, I didn't realize this before I committed to it. It's 8.2% alcohol. So um, I think I'll be a little bit different at the end of the show than the, at the start. You know, better you than me, man. <laughs> and what are you drinking? Well, you were kind enough to supply me with this uh, Flying Monkeys uh, Juicy Ass IPA. Just sort of a... <laughs> Good name, right? Yeah. What's, yeah. what's with, with you guys in the homoerotic references, by the way? Uh, that's, yeah, that's just how we roll, man. <laughs> All right. That's it's 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 a honest expression of our true feelings for each other. Okay, fair yeah. enough. I can't I can't uh, fault you for that. Then. <laughs> yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, it's good. It's it feels like very refreshing in summary. Uh, I dig it. Yeah, my my son, uh, who's only ten, uh, I, I I had some of that earlier in the week, and he's like, "What does juicy ass mean?" And I I, <laughs> I had to explain to the best of my ability. You know, he's got to learn sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and John, uh, what are you drinking? <laughs> uh, not nothing quite as uh, fun in terms of the name as that. I'm drinking a uh, uh, Modelo Especial. Um, and uh, you asked me, I think, to tell you something about why I chose this, other than the fact that the first one I was looking for was not available at either of the two stores I went to. Um, I, I chose this one because it reminds me of a trip I took to Mexico more than 20 years ago with um, a guy who was my landlord in Santa Barbara. I lived in, in UC, I taught at UC Santa Barbara for one year. I lived in Santa Barbara in the back of um, a, a beautiful kind of mansion-like place in Santa Barbara, with a beautiful backyard with orange trees and stuff. And, and they had converted an old shed or something into an apartment. And I rented that apartment and became very close with the landlord, um, who, whose name was JJ. And we had that in common because uh, those are my initials and, and everyone in high school, for instance, called me JJ. So we bonded immediately and he became my West Coast papa is what he would call it. And uh, one time I took a trip down to Baja with him and my actual biological papa uh, from the Midwest. And the three of us uh, spent a week drinking uh, Modelo Especial and Negro Modelo and having a blast. 
Well, I think we should drink to uh, the two Let's JJs. Drink Thank to the you. two JJs. Thanks, yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Welcome to the show. Thank Cheers. You. All right. So we have a, a ton of stuff that we'd love to talk to you about. So I'm just going to jump right in. Um, and I, I guess the first thing I'm curious about is, you know, what um, drew you to this discipline? So you uh, you started grad school, uh, say the show notes, studying philosophy. Uh, so at some point you decided to switch and to do something else and you decided social psychology was for you. So, so what did that process look like? How did you make that decision? It's actually a little different than that. Uh, I was a psychology major in undergraduate uh, school. I went to Duke University and studied psychology. My father, as I mentioned, is a, is a philosopher. And so I grew up uh, with philosophical conversations being you know, part of the milieu. Um, but I actually decided, I made a, a conscious decision in a way not to go into philosophy. Maybe there's something edible there. I don't know. Uh, instead, I went into psychology and I studied psychology, as I say, at Duke University. And one of the people who influenced me a great deal was actually a personality and clinical psychologist named Irving Alexander, who was a wonderful guy who also happened to be a former student and at the time current best friend of Sylvan Tompkins. And so it was through Irving Alexander that I learned about the work of Sylvan Tompkins, not only his work on emotions, which is really well known, but he had also done these fascinating writings, I thought about uh, left and right as basic dimensions of human personality and human experience. He had a whole theory that was really incredibly rich about the ways in which uh, left-wing personalities differ from right-wing personalities, and he applied it to music and mathematics and art and attitudes about sex and all kinds of fascinating things. So I actually learned about all that as an undergraduate student. We, at Duke University at that time did not have much in the way of social psychology, I was there in the late 1980s. They had been arguably the best or one of the best places for social psychology back in the 60s and 70s with Jack Bram and Ned Jones, among others. Um, but they, after uh, Bram went to Kansas and Jones went to Princeton, they really didn't rebuild the social psychology group at Duke for 20 more years or maybe longer. And so I discovered the field of social psychology uh, uh, in England. Uh, I, was, I did a study abroad program one summer in London. And that's really where I learned about social psychology as a discipline. I learned about social identity theory. And to me, that was perfect as soon as I learned about it, because I, I'd been interested in, um, in psychology from an early age, uh, including psychotherapy and processes of personal change, but, but also social change and politics and collective action and protest. And so it was kind of a revelation for me to learn that this field of uh, existed called social psychology, where you try to bring these things together. And I'd already been questioning whether I wanted to go into kind of clinical psychology, because to me, it felt a little bit like um, forcing square pegs into round holes or something. Uh, when I when I thought because I, I had that idea at that time, and I still do really that that there's a lot of problems that are really fundamentally social problems rather than individual problems. Um, but they affect individuals, of course, and so they become individual problems. And then so to me, as I say, it was a revelation to learn that there was this field that was trying in a way to integrate those two things. So I pretty much decided then and there that summer in London that I wanted to be a social psychologist. And so I went back to Duke and I, I talked to Phil Costanzo, who was the only person who had been a social psychologist, although he, he sort of converted into clinical psychology. He was the head of the clinical training program at Duke at the time. But he let me take his graduate seminar on social psychology, which he taught mostly to PhD students in clinical psychology. 
Um, and and uh, they all advised me about graduate school and so on. So I actually got admitted to graduate school uh, while I was still an undergrad at Duke, but I deferred my admission uh, to because I also got a fellowship from the University of Cincinnati, which would have which enabled me to go back home for a year and be with my my dad and the family. And I did that. So I basically postponed my um, graduate training in social psychology at Yale for one year while I went back to Cincinnati and and did a uh, what turned out to be a master's thesis on Wittgenstein. Oh, I see. Okay, right. I was like, how did this get in the show notes? Like Mickey was obviously has been <laughs> drinking already and. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a great so story. This is, yeah, this is how is. it's going to go for you guys. If you let, just let me talk, you know, <laughs> no, we're, we're, we can always edit you later. So, okay. Uh, well, you yeah. might need to edit, edit me for brevity and or clarity. You know, um, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, so one thing I find really interesting about that story is it sounds like you were interested in the relationship between politics and personality pretty early on, like even as an undergraduate. So does, was that always something that you knew you were interested in pursuing as a line of research? No, uh, I came back to it later. Uh, so I was always, always interested in politics and I was always interested in psychology, but not the bringing them together. Um, I grew up in a pretty political household. Uh, my parents uh, met at a civil rights meeting in, in 1963. Um, and my grandfather was a civil rights activist uh, in Rochester, New York. And uh, we, we kind of grew up with, uh, you know, a lot, uh, talking a lot about what was happening, the Vietnam War, Watergate, Reagan's presidency, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, economic inequality, all these things were kind of part of racial inequality, gender issues. They were all part of our environment, even though Cincinnati's a relatively conservative um, uh, place in general, um, there was a lot of political interest in my immediate uh, environment that was not necessarily conservative. Um, and so I, I and as a college student, I was interested in activism and, and making the world a better place and that sort of thing. But I didn't really think of doing it in any professional way until, until later. Um, partly, part was discovering social psychology as a field. Um, but I, so I was, I was really just intrigued by Sylvan Tompkins' theories as an undergraduate. But the program at Yale when I went there was very social cognition very uh, experimentalist, very uh, situationalist. And so personality was almost a dirty word. And so it really wasn't until years later when I was doing a postdoc with Arya Kuglansky that I, I rediscovered uh, Sylvan Tompkins' writings and, and realized at that point, or even subsequently, that it, it had left a very um, big influence on me. Um, so that's a, a, a good segue to our next question. Um, I think, you know, some of your most influential work has been in political psychology. And in particular, uh, you were the lead author on a paper called Conservatism as Motivated Social Cognition, that I would say is the most influential paper in political psychology in the last 20 years, let's say. Thank you. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't know if that was a compliment, but thank you. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think influential, uh, you know, I think any paper that's influential is going to attract uh, adherents, but also critics, right? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I, I want to hear, I guess we want to hear the backstory of that paper. How did that, how did that paper come about? Sure. Uh, so after I, as I was wrapping up my, my PhD at Yale, uh, I had to figure out what to do next. And, um, there were a couple of options, but not really, um, a long-term option. 
but there was one of the options I was fortunate to have was uh, to do a postdoc with Arya Kublansky, who at that time had two major grants, one, one, I think, from NSF and one from NIH. And he hired four postdocs all at the same time. And I was one of those four postdocs. Uh, he, he referred to us at the time as a dream team. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we were kind of, uh, in, in close cahoots, we shared offices and, and, uh, and I, I'm sad to say I'm the only one of the four who's still in academia actually, but, um, but I learned a lot from, from the other postdocs and, um, Arie was very interested in the relationship between psychological conservatism, which he was studying through the lens of lay epistemic theory in terms of the need for cognitive closure. Uh, and, and order and structure and these kinds of things, and and political um, uh, conservatism and political psychology. And so I did have a background at Yale uh, attending a weekly meeting of political psychologists uh, between, so faculty from both psychology and, and graduate students from both psychology and political science. We met every week or every other week for years. And so I, I did have a pretty strong background uh, in all of that, Bob Abelson was one of the leaders of that group. Leonard Dube was a frequent attendee. Bob Lane from political science, um, and uh, and Bill McGuire, my dissertation advisor, had uh, was well known at least in political psychology circles for his work on social influence and persuasion and things like this. So I had a strong political psychology background. Uh, also attended the Summer Institute in political psychology, which at that time was held at Ohio State, now is at Stanford, run by John Krosnick. And so Arie, when he saw my credentials, kind of pitched this project to me of, um, of, of connecting up psychological conservatism from this need for uh, cognitive closure point of view with political uh, uh, psychology. He had had this uh, kind of correlational result from work he did with Donna Webster between need for cognitive closure and authoritarianism. And he was kind of interested in that. He'd found that there were connections to stereotyping and prejudice and things like this. So... Um, so we decided that we would uh, we would do something pretty ambitious. Uh, I, I read everything I could get my hands on uh, at the time, uh, which uh, you know I discovered the work of Glenn Wilson, uh, for instance, who'd done a bunch of work in the 1970s on the psychology of, of political conservatism, and just kind of read everything and Sidanius and Tetlock and all these people and started to try to integrate it into a kind of coherent theory. And so the project itself started in 1995, 1996, and it wasn't published until 2003. So that's how long it takes or took at that time anyway, for us to get a, uh, a psychological bulletin article on a controversial topic uh, to, to be published. Uh, I think they reviewed it three or four times, the constant you know, rotating cast of new reviewers and um, and, uh, but we, 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 uh, we did it. So it was a big project. Well, that, so I'm, uh, interested that you seem to have had such a tough time in the review process. Do you feel like some of that pushback was political or like what were, why yeah. the four rounds? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I, I think, um, you know, I think this is something that, that we've, you and I've talked about a little bit, Yoel, um, you know, my, my take on the field is somewhat different, uh, than, than, a lot of other people's take. Uh, I think even though we're a field that, that has a lot of liberals in it, like in higher education in general, uh, it's also a field where liberals are afraid to be too liberal and they do a lot of self-censorship and other censorship. And 
worried about rocking the boat and being too controversial and, and so on. And, and some, I think, want to try to maintain some kind of a, a value neutral stance on, on social science topics, which I think it's not clear to me what, let, let's say, taking a value neutral stance on racism or something or sexism is. So, you know, I think, uh, I think we're, we're, I, I, my, my view is it's closer to Robert Frost, which is, you know, liberals, and I think this applies to liberal social psychologists, they're often too broad-minded to take their own side in a fight. Right. So this is actually really um, a great lead into the next thing that I wanted to ask you, which is that, you know, this has been a super influential paper. And I think to lots of people who maybe haven't read it in detail and just know kind of the headline, um, it's uh, something along the lines of conservatives bad. So conservatives are dogmatic, they're rigid, they're closed minded, they're anxious. Would you say that's a fair takeaway if you're just going to gloss the paper in a sentence or two? Well, some of those statements you just made are empirical statements that are backed by, if not overwhelming evidence, a good deal of evidence. Um, uh, and some of them, I would say, are, are claims that I think are valid, and some of those maybe not. But um, I don't think the point is to say conservative is bad. I think, I think we, we need to understand the psychological appeal of political ideas and attitudes that um, that are dogmatic, that are rigid, that are prejudicial. Um, I, I think you can't be, in my view, you can't be a political psychologist or even a social scientist without realizing that we need to understand where authoritarianism comes from. And I don't think, which is not to say you can't have authoritarianism or rigidity on the left, you can. But if it's an empirical fact that it's more prevalent, at least in the Western world, let's say, on one side than the other, uh, you, you can't ignore that and be a good social scientist. Right. So I feel like what you're saying is like, look, we're just kind of following the data where it goes, right? And yeah. if that means that one group looks bad, well, then then too bad, right? Yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, it's as big a, a, a mistake or a, um, a violation of, of the principles of social science to try to change your message to make it more palatable um, than it is to, to, to change the, the message to make it uh, more offensive to somebody. Um, the goal is to understand the world as it is, whether we like what we see or not, I think. Right. So as far as that empirical takeaway, I mean, this has been such an influential paper that there's been a whole like another wave of work now, I would say, kind of responding to it, um, essentially saying that there's kind of symmetrical uh, bias or kind of symmetrical um, proneness to these these sorts of um, things that we would maybe say are suboptimal, like let's say dogmatism, for example. And the argument here is basically like, look, a bunch of by and large liberal researchers came up with measures of dogmatism that you know they were trying to be even-handed about, but that really make the people that they don't agree with look bad, right? And so these uh, findings are based in part on the fact that the measures are designed a certain way. And if we design measures a different way, we can show that people, uh, liberals, are just as dogmatic in perhaps other domains, right? So like people on the right might be dogmatic about um, religious traditions. People on the left might be dogmatic about, I don't know, um, what climate scientists say, or perhaps the lived experience of racial minorities or what have you. Does that, do those critiques convince you at all? No, not at all. In fact, the, the, it's based on a false premise to begin with. 
Um, it's not the case that liberal researchers sat around and, and said, how can we come up with measures to make conservatives look bad? In almost all of the cases, all the variables that, that we compiled in, in that initial meta-analysis and also in the uh, uh, subsequent meta-analysis that we uh, published just in the last few years, it has way more studies than the first uh, one, by the way, uh, almost all the measures were developed in a completely apolitical context. People were studying intolerance of ambiguity, cognitive and perceptual rigidity, um, uh, you know, um, integrative complexity, all these things before they were, before anyone knew, even knew there were liberal conservative differences. To me, when we discovered there are liberal conservative differences, we need to ask some pretty deep theoretical questions about why those, why those differences exist. Uh, on the issue of dogmatism, it's especially badly taken as a point because Milton Rokic set out purposefully to try to come up with a scale. Uh, he was responding to critics of the authoritarian personality. He, he spent years of his life trying to come up with a scale where liberals and conservatives would score equally high on dogmatism and cognitive rigidity, and he failed to do so. Even the, the scale that he decided was as value neutral as he could make it, uh, conservatives kept coming up higher on it. So that's just, an, a lot of the argument is based on an ignorance of, of history of social science, and that's a problem. Then the second thing is, it may be cutesy to get a, a cheap publication by saying, can we create measures that make liberals and conservatives look the same? But it's, it's a fundamentally unhelpful exercise that only serves someone to get a cheap publication. It's not trying to actually illuminate uh, the world as it is, because you're actually doing the thing you're criticizing other people of doing, even though they didn't do it. Milton Rokic did not set out to look, make conservatives look bad, but these people are setting out to try to make liberals look bad. They're doing exactly what they accuse their, uh, <laughs> the people they criticize of, of doing. It's, it's projection. Right. So I, one thing I guess I'm curious about is like, it seems to me plausible that there's certain ways in which liberals and conservatives kind of look the same. So if you're like, how do you respond to somebody who doesn't share your important worldviews, for example? Or well, right? of course, there's a million right. things, there's a million things that were the same. We we all we all drink beer. We all eat, <laughs> uh, you know, more car- carbohydrates than we should, etc. Cetera, et cetera. There's a million similarities between liberals and conservatives, but that doesn't mean there aren't some telling and important differences too. Right. So I guess in terms of this like research agenda of saying like, well, where is there symmetry versus asymmetry? between liberals and conservatives. Like, do you, do you think that's like per se a bad idea or just you don't like the way that it's been done? Because I'm sort of struggling to understand like, well, why isn't it interesting to say, okay, here's the ways in which basically these like kind of coalitional loyalty sort of forces play out psychologically in similar ways, regardless of where you are on the, on the political spectrum. And here are some things where there really do seem to be kind of deep psychological differences between people on the left on the, and the right. Surely there's, there's both, right? I totally agree. There's both. And I try in my work to be very careful about what I, what I see as the differences as well as the similarities. I mean, I, I don't think social identity theory is, is new. I think it's right, but I, I've known it. I've known it since the early 1980s. So yes, I believe in in-group favoritism, uh, you know, tribalism is just a, a kind of fanciful, silly name for in-group favoritism. Of course, in-group favoritism happens, but yeah, and if we if we need to come up with a theory of in-group favoritism, I think we go back to social engineering theory and we and we do what we need to to 
update and improve upon that perspective. But that's a different thing because it's never going to tell you how or why um, these tribes, these so-called tribes, differ from each other. And right-wing tribes and left-wing tribes do differ from each other. If they didn't, we probably wouldn't find it useful to use the terms right and left, but we do. Right. So do you think that there's anything kind of unique to how the liberal worldview causes you to evaluate evidence or think about the social world that's worth studying on its own terms? Maybe like looking specifically at things we might think are problematic in terms of like, let's say, rejecting science. So like on the right, we know that, you know, at least in the U.S., uh, conservatives tend to have a problem with the science supporting global warming. Right. Uh, On the left, it's been argued, at least, that liberals are allergic to um, any sort of biological bases of behavior, anything that suggests that there's real differences between groups like men and women, for example, and that they can get pretty anti-science in those respects. Do you, is that worth pursuing to you? So there's a lot there. So let me first um, uh, answer the first part of your question. Uh, as I understood it, it, to me, that's also a question about history. Where does science come from? Well, science is, uh, I think, an inherently if you look at it in its historical context, it's an inherently liberal or progressive way of viewing the world. And it was, uh, in, in, you know, in the, you know, the, the historical enlightenment period, uh, we get people who were, who were beginning to argue that reason and empirical evidence should trump traditional authorities, especially and including religious authorities. Um, so without the enlightenment movement, which is fundamentally and Tompkins would say this too, a left-wing movement or a leftist uh, movement, I would say more secular, humanist, liberal, progressive movement, we have no science. So in, in that sense, all of science is a liberal, it's not a traditional conservative endeavor. Uh, of course, nowadays, it's part of the status quo. And so that you can, it's not hard to find some people who identify themselves as conservatives in a contemporary perspective, but, but presumably they, they wouldn't be pre-enlightenment figures. Uh, who are doing science today. So, so you've already got a big, major elective, what I would call an elective affinity between liberal uh, worldviews and, and science and empirical evidence and reason and all these things. So there's that. Um, and so maybe it's not so surprising, especially as the Republican Party has gotten more and more hostile to, to, towards science, that 90 or whatever, 80, 80%, 90%, I don't know what, of scientists consider themselves more closely um, allied with Democrats than Republicans. Maybe that's not such a, maybe that's kind of an obvious thing, especially in light of Republican policies. Um, so that's one thing. But then the other thing is, um, are liberals allergic to biological uh, essentialism? Maybe essentialism, yes, but not biology. Um, liberals are more likely to believe in evolutionary biology than conservatives. I venture to guess for reasons that are not unrelated to what I just said about the Enlightenment. Um, There have been periods in our history, for sure, where um, in the 60s and 70s, I know that um, the sociobiologists like E.O. Wilson got really attacked on on political and ideological grounds by people who considered themselves leftists. And I think that's, that's lamentable. I think that a scientist who's in good faith saying what they think is true uh, we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be, uh, you know, denouncing their work simply because we don't like the political implications of that. Uh, although that is basically what many of the critics of, of liberal bias in social science are actually doing now. 
Um, but I also think that there were legitimate criticisms of the uh, sociobiological paradigm. Um, uh, and some of those have been either addressed a little bit or at least um, uh, some of the newer evolutionary psychology stuff, I think, attempts to get away from uh, some of the more essentialistic aspects of things. And in that way, I think it's more scientific, more true to Darwinian theory. It's more true to evolutionary biology in general. So, and I, in, in my experience, all of the, um, all the liberals I know are totally open to evolutionary theorizing about, about all animal behavior, including human animal behavior. Um, so this is, I mean, all this stuff is super interesting and I'm, I, I, I'm almost a spectator here, just observing you guys, you know, duke it out a bit. And then I find it fascinating. Um, so, the, and I think we're going to follow up on, on a bunch of stuff that you said, John. Um, but, but one thing, uh, I want to ask, um, is, you know, so your, your first paper, this first paper, contributism and as motivated social cognition, um, incredibly influential, as we said, and you followed it up since, um, where if at all, do you think you you guys made mistakes? Where 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 did you guys overreach, or you were just flat out wrong? If at all. Um, well, first of all, I mean the evidence base was not as strong as one would have liked, but but I think that, um, and this was even in the era before the internet, right? I did these these searches by going to the library, in some cases looking in card catalogs and things, and. Um, and computer printouts too, but, um, but, uh, you know, and following things from one bibliography to another, I found just about everything I think that had been done empirically on psychological differences between liberals and conservatives, at least in relation to, uh, variables that we would think of as related to openness, um, uh, to needs for order, structure, closure, essentially epistemic motives and existential motives. But the evidence, you know, in some cases there, there were, you know, there were only, 10 or 12 effect sizes or something like that, that, that I could find. Um, so in that sense, you know, we're proposing a pretty big theory, especially by the, by the modest standards of social psychology <laughs> to try to integrate all this stuff. And so of course the, the evidence, um, you know, that was available at the time probably doesn't support all of the more speculative claims, but I also think we, we tried to make it somewhat clear, at least where we were, where we were doing a bit of speculation and, and I'm, I'm one who would rather have authors do a bit of speculation than, than, than not uh, because I'm interested in theory <laughs> also. Um, and so I feel like when we, when I, I did a kind of a, I revisited it in um, an article I published in 2017 in political psychology. It was my presidential address for the ISPP, the International Society of Political Psychology, where we uh, with student PhD students of mine, Chadley Stern and, and Joanna Sterling mostly, um, we realized that the number of studies conducted between 2003 and 2017 on these topics massively dwarfed <laughs> the number of studies done between 1950 and, and 2003. So um, we were, were now in a much, much better position to understand which uh, ideological asymmetries are very robust and, and consistent and which ones not so much. Um, and so like, one of the things that surprised me was the, the fear of death effect may, may be uh, disappeared or, or something, or at least temporarily has gone underground. I don't know. We didn't find that that uh, 
held up in the subsequent research. But almost all the cognitive style variables, uh, epistemic variables, including dogmatism, cognitive perceptual rigidity, uh, all those things, the effects are, are, if anything, I think our estimates now would be that they're, they're stronger than what we thought in 2003. So uh, I want to follow up a little bit. Uh, so uh, interesting uh, what you said about the fear of death. What about, uh, and this has been on Twitter for the past the week or two, um, what is your take on the status of the finding that um, conservatives tend to be more attuned to negative information, uh, more anxious, maybe uh, more sensitive to to negative stimuli in the environment? Um, yeah, I think there are a number of studies that suggest that that is uh, the case. I mean, first of all, we also this is a whole other issue, we, we do have to think more about context. We can't be social scientists and pretend that context doesn't matter. That doesn't make any sense at all. So I, I'm aware of, I would say, at least 10 or 12 good studies that have found ideological asymmetries in that. I'm also aware of a couple of studies, at least, that haven't found that. Um, but the evidence is still pouring in. I mean, I, I get papers to review uh, all the time that that find additional evidence for these kinds of of, of claims, as well as some some papers that are uh, arguing against uh, some of the evidence, you know, I think we have to we have to think about it as a whole. I I, I think um, there's a little bit of this of uh, there's a little bit of this, and I think Twitter and these things magnifies the problem of presentism. Like whatever the last thing you heard about it or read about it is carries more weight than all the other evidence that came before it, and I, I think that's. A mistake, and, and that's one reason why I sort of like narrative reviews and I like meta-analytic reviews because it helps to put things in perspective. And of course, you're you're going to get null results sometimes, and sometimes it's because researchers actually don't know what they're doing, <laughs> and sometimes it's for perfectly valid reasons, and sometimes it's because the contexts are totally different. Yeah, I I think we should come back to this idea of um, more broadly how do you interpret. Uh, failures to replicate. That's something we're curious what your take on it is. Uh, there's one more thing that I wanted to ask you about um, this paper in particular, which is that you made this really strong argument that there's sort of this inherent tie between social conservatism and uh, laissez-faire economics, right? So that um, well, inherent tie, inherent tie is too strong. That's to me. That's that. That's the, the essentialism. I what I I'm, again. I'm, I'm not against biology. I'm against biological essentialism. I'm I'm not against. I'm against. I'm not trying to argue anything is inherent in the sense of it's ineradicable, always going to appear, that sort of thing. I'm talking about elective affinities, talking about correspondences that occur more often than not. So I, I guess the way I took it was this isn't just something that happens to be particular to, let's say, the U.S. political context. This is something broader than that. Yes, it's absolutely. In some in some cases, um, you know, at least historically, the left-right divide has been even greater in other countries than in the U.S. In the U.S., we're now at a, a pretty high watermark for that, but uh, other countries have, have been there before us and, and maybe will be there after us. So, yeah, left-right, I think that the fundamental d- dimension that I'm interested in is, as Tompkins said, is left-right. It's not, um, I mean, liberal conservative are the terms we use for it in the U.S., and, and that could be confusing because in some contexts they use those terms a little differently, especially liberal in some countries is slightly right of center uh, and and so on. So the left-right dimension, it's not an American dimension. It originates with the French Revolution. So it's a European, originally European distinction that 
happens to make a great deal of sense in the U.S. and in Australia and in New Zealand and in Latin America and a lot of other places. Right. So I, I guess my question is, like, how strong do you see the connection being um, between uh, social traditionalism on the one hand and kind of economic free market beliefs on the other? Because it seems like even point in the five, U.S., point five. Point, that's like that, that's an, uh, a correlation coefficient. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, <laughs> does recent political history in the U.S. Um, change your mind on that at all? I mean, it seems like a lot of what got Trump elected is sort of breaking from the Republican Party line on small government, for example, on free trade um, and so on. Now, you can say, well, he hasn't governed that way, but that seems to be the promise that he made that people were responding to, right? Um, OK, that's there's a lot there, too. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think that I, I think that, that that's not the right way to think about Trump. Um, I don't think that Trump campaigned as a socialist. I don't think that anyone voted for him because they thought he was a socialist. He's actually one of the biggest capitalists in the United States. You're right. He said some things that sounded uh, like they might be good for average people. But as you pointed out, he's not governed that way at all. Um, he's he's. You know, he's defending the overdog, not the underdog, even though he sometimes would use rhetoric that was meant to appeal to the underdog. But um, but you can't understand his success uh, as something like uh, combining, um, you know, social conservatism with with progressive economics or something. No, it, it has nothing, nothing to do with that. Well, it worldwide you know populist parties one part of what they're promising is you know more social welfare for the in group right that's that's kind of part of their appeal sometimes yeah sometimes um i mean that's a debate that historians have um uh you know one of the things uh i mean you know hitler chose the term national socialism uh and certainly would would uh make certain appeals that sounded like uh like supporting a social welfare state for native Germans and so on. But, um, but uh, historians will tell you, he said, he said, whatever, you know, whatever uh, he thought the people in his audience wanted to hear at the time, because he, he said totally different things to the leaders of business corporations uh, and, and so on. So we have to distinguish, I think, between the, the populist rhetoric and who they're talking to uh, as a strategic matter and the substance of what they're about. But what I think unites the two dimensions, some people want to make a strong distinction, a harsh, uh, I think a really strong distinction, uh, sometimes two, I think two dichotomous distinctions between social and economic dimensions of ideology. Well, what, what unites them is the issue of equality, inequality. And there's equality and inequality that matters in, in terms of uh, social groups, race, ethnicity, uh, men and women, uh, and political equality, who gets to vote, uh, you know, we're still fighting over who gets to vote, by the way, in the United States. Um, and there's economic inequality, whether the wealth is going to the top or whether it's going to be spread more uh, evenly throughout. I, I've argued that the reason that social and, and if you like to draw the distinction between social and economic dimensions, even though most of <laughs> uh, government is dealing with things that are both social and economic in nature, if you want to understand why they go together, it's two reasons, I think. One is because it's it's either you're for making things more equal or whether or you're you're for um, 
allowing the people on top to to continue their uh, their success, so to speak. Uh, and it's and it's the, the second reason is that most social movements going back hundreds and hundreds of years have been in the direction of greater equality. Not everyone. Fascism is a, an aberration in that sense. Um, but in general, most of the of the social changes we've seen have been towards increasing political equality, allowing more and more people to vote, uh, increasing social equality between races and classes, between men and women, and so on. Generally speaking, this is the progressivist, uh, pro- progressive movements have been pushing greater equality, and the people who um, perforce want to either slow it down or or stop that kind of those kinds of changes have been appealing to traditions and, and the way things have always been, uh, including uh, going back very far. This conversation is so fascinating that I don't want to stop, uh, but I do want more beer. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're probably easiest to reach on Twitter where our account is at four beers pod. Um, you can DM us. Our DMs are open or you can at mention us. If you're more an email sort of person, our email address is four beers pod at Gmail. And finally, our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can find the current episode as well as all of our previous episodes. You can drop us a line there as well. If you like, that will go to both me and to Mickey. Uh, Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. We've we've had a couple fun reviews lately, so we do appreciate those and and keep them coming. Uh, Mickey, do you have anything else you wanted to add? Uh, Yeah, so uh, on the topic of, of review, so please review us, even if you hate us. No, no, don't review us if you hate us. <laughs> I don't mind a one star. I do. I want to keep stars <laughs> up. So, but our latest review is the title. I won't read the whole thing. The title is hilarious. The title is easily among the best podcasts about psychologists drinking beer. I love the among. Right? Yeah, among. Yeah, so it's among. not even like the best. Yeah, no, no. It's no. kind of like me telling my daughter. Uh, my, I only have one daughter. She's my favorite daughter. Exactly. <laughs> Easily among one of your favorite daughters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for that, reviewer. Yes, thank you very much. Um, so uh, let's uh, let's talk beer. Uh, and you know, uh, listeners, I coaxed Yoel into finishing his his beer uh, during the break, and now we are going to be enjoying. Um, uh, something from Kensington Brewing Company, uh, which is in the neighborhood, Kensington Market in Toronto, which is by far, without competition, my favorite neighborhood in Toronto. Just love it. And it's a small little brewer, and we're drinking a watermelon wheat, um, which has got really just a hint of watermelon, but I love the description of it. I just got to read a little bit. It, you know, it recommends, the, the, the brewers recommend that we pair this uh, with a lobster roll, feta cheese, or a light summer salad. It's a, it's a little precious. How about, how about we, (laughs) yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. We just get drunk on it. How's that? Would I that think that okay? sounds perfect. Yeah. yeah, that's my plan. And John, you're you're still with the same? I'm sticking uh, with the Modelo, but um, in honor of JJ and, and the trip I took with him and my dad. But I'm curious why you guys call the show Four Beers, because it seems like you're not counting your guest beers. That's a good point. We actually, we didn't start being uh, an interview show. Like, ah. I, I don't think that we really expected that we would go in that direction. And then it was just like, it came up by sort of organically, like, oh, this is a good topic to talk to this person about, right? And then we started having guests on. That makes sense. But yeah, yeah. that's true. And uh, not all our guests drink beer. Some of them drink wine, some of them drink whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, that's right. That's and right. Some, and, 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 and I, you know, uh, originally we said we would drink four beers and then I modified it to be to a minimum of four beers. Mm-hmm. And I had to essentially make up for UL. That's true. He is. I, I never. Pull you're you're basically away. carrying the show drink wise. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely is. Yeah. No question. Yes, at all. that's right. Yeah. Um, OK, enough beer talk. Uh, John, I think before the break, we, we were getting really uh, kind of uh, right in the weeds, which I liked. Um, and there are really so much uh, that, that was said in that first half. And I want to follow, follow up with some of it. Um, so I think really at the top, uh, you mentioned this this notion of um in social psychology, we're not, uh, you know, political enough that in some ways we are apologetic for, uh, you know, our, you know, we're mostly liberal. We're apologetic for being for being overly liberal. So my question is really a simple one. And, and that is, uh, to what extent do you think it's appropriate or it's an ought that we ought to be, you know, engaging in these political debates in a in a in, in an ideological manner by that meaning having an opinion about what is right and what is wrong? Um, should we be activists, uh, advocates for X or should we instead be neutral fact finders? Yeah. Great questions. Uh, obviously, have been asked a million times and answered a million different ways. But um, uh, I think when we admit that we're doing social science, we have to admit that the things we're studying have something to do with human values. And that's actually, I think, what makes it useful and important. Uh, it, I, to me, um, not only is the idea of social science having absolutely no values ridiculous and impossible to imagine, it wouldn't even be a good thing to spend your life doing if it were. <laughs> uh, so I think the point of, of doing what we do is to try to actually make the world a better place, but to do so in a, in a good faith way by talking about the empirical regularities in the world and our understanding of the causes of those things and our identifying of certain things as social problems and our attempt to try to figure out potential solutions to the problems that don't make things worse. And that I think is what our job description is and should be, whether we like it or not. And we can be pretending to do something different than that, but I I think it's just pretend. So yes, do we need people who study problems of racism and sexism from, um, from a, a social scientific perspective. Absolutely. I think these things are, are frankly too important to just leave to uh, political activists or philosophers or whoever else. Um, yes, these are, these are value-laden topics. Yes, these are the, the substance of social science. Um, uh, should we be activists? I mean, that's a different question. I think that's a personal choice that you make. Uh, about what to do with your time, really. And and that is a question of, of values and individuals can, I think, address the, those 
uh, questions for themselves. I, I wouldn't say that doing social science and doing activism are the same thing. I think that there, sometimes one can support the other and, and maybe sometimes one can work against the other, but I think um, they're both important things to be doing. Uh, so I don't blame people who, who choose to do both of them. Do I want um, environmental scientists involved in our discussions about what we do uh, with climate change policy? Yes, I absolutely do. I would not want to exclude those scientists from that conversation. Um, so, I mean, that's such a great answer, um, but there's potentially one problem with that. And that is that, you know, all of us are human and we have blind spots and we have, we ask certain questions. We don't ask other questions. And what if in our zeal to make the world better, we're only interested, we're only interested in certain answers or certain kinds of answers. And we don't even ask other questions that are legitimate and important. Um, but again, because our worldview excludes them, uh, we don't see them as legitimate. We don't see them as, as important. Isn't that a problem? Yeah, it's, a, it's called the problem of human existence. We, we all have to do that. I mean, we have to reckon with the fact that the way we see things may not be the way somebody else sees them. And we have to try to be thoughtful and develop ways of seeing the world that are satisfying to us on multiple levels, some of which are, are levels of values and some of which are levels of um, epistemic grounding. So, yeah, of course, um, I, I, there's a million ways in which our perspectives are limited by things. I mean, we're three white men here talking about stuff that's going to be different than somebody else's perspective. Um, are you guys worried that we shouldn't have social psychologists teaching in business schools and making huge salaries that are funded by by corporations because you're uh, you're worried that it's going to lead social psychologists to overlook the problems with contemporary capitalism? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I haven't seen a single person uh, write an article or uh, even a tweet a tweet about that. Um, I'd like it if you guys talked about it because I actually think that would be a more constructive uh, view for all all of society because what what gets lost in the shuffle a lot of times in, in these complaints about liberal bias is the fact that there's very few cultural spheres in, in the world that can look at the way we're living through a critical lens. And I think that social scientists have that ability in part because we can draw on data rather than just how we wish things to be. Um, and if you, you know, that's a crucially important thing that we should defend. And so the critical view of society and the way things have always been done the way things are being done now, that is something to cherish. That is not something to dilute or be embarrassed about or anything. And so I think it's quite possible that society would be better served by saying we need more people who are more critical of, of the way we do things, including the way we do things economically. Right. So I think, you know, if I can take a step back a little bit, like I think your point about values is is well put. So we're never going to be able to do our work outside of some value framework, right? Um, and the question is, do we like acknowledge these are the values that we're working from? Do we defend them in a, in a way that kind of honestly grapples with the idea that some things, you know, are non-empirical, they're kind of moral commitments that we have. And the, fear that I have is that kind of homogeneity ideologically is a problem for that, right? And and just to be clear, I don't mean 
just, you know, we need more center-right people, but, you know, that the consensus kind of politics of um, the kind of median social psychologist is maybe you could say like, you know, the kind of woke capitalist sort of thing, right? They're, they are kind of bought into the system broadly, but then also, you know, there should be more African-Americans on corporate boards or whatever. And I'm putting that in a very like reductive and cynical way. Um, but I think in general, like the to me, it seems like how are you ever going to critically examine and push yourself on these fundamental values that you're bringing to your science if you all kind of think the same way? Like, and to me, that's the core of this push for like, we need more diversity in terms of ideology. And again, not just in terms of including center-right people, but I, I think people who don't like kind of agree with our kind of dominant ideology in the field feel like it's difficult for them, right? Feel like it's not okay to have those views, feel like they get pushed back. And I would actually include you in that because I think you're kind of to the left economically of the media and social psychologist. Yeah. Um, again, there's a lot there to unpack what you, in what you just said. Um, so I think what we want is accuracy and critical pers perspicacity, not diversity per se. The goal is not to get a bunch of people to disagree, who, whose job it is to disagree with each other, to disagree with each other more strenuously or in more extreme ways. I don't think that's what the goal should be. Um, I, I think the goal should be getting things right. And to the extent that an, an opinion that is closer to the truth than, than the herd, yes, we need that opinion, but not because it's different, because it's more right. So I think that's the whole issue has been framed in a way just to help the center right, and that's it. Um, the the, the I, I I agree with part of what you, with with part of the premise of your question, which is on a lot of issues. I I think you know the truth is is probably to the left of of the social psychological community, or even maybe to the left of the New York Times on many things, for instance. So um, I am sympathetic to the idea that people are not questioning enough, but but the the way of questioning is is cheap and lazy. It's, you know, let's, let's try to find a, a you know, a couple conservatives or something uh, to, to tell us things that, you know, we probably don't agree with anyway. So, um, you know, which is not to say you can't have conservative intellectuals who are super smart and say true things. I think you can. Um, so I think our goal should be figuring out what the true things are, not figuring out how to cover, you know, more perspectives, <laughs> Uh, it's how to cover the right perspectives or the, the accurate ones or the ones that are not um, that are not taken for granted. Maybe yes. Um, there was a bunch of other hold on, John. So, but yeah. I mean, yeah. in there, I mean, I agree with that premise. But don't we get closer to that if people have um, different ranges of errors? By that I mean the different perspectives, and therefore they're, they're smart trying to get at the truth, but they have different views of the world and therefore whatever biases they have will cancel each other out. So you need some diversity. No, that, to approximate that, that, truth. I think that's a bad argument. Biases don't cancel each other out. That biases make a mess of everything. Um, so I think what, what you would, what you're saying is true only, only in a world in which the truth is somewhere, somewhere between the democratic party and the Republican party. And I doubt that that's the case for most issues. If that were the case, then yes, you want the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to be discussing things to find out where in the middle the truth is. If, on the other hand, what I'm saying is right, 
on many of these issues, especially issues of global capitalism, neoliberalism, uh, climate change, uh, all kinds of things. If the, if the truth is to the left of the Democratic Party, then what you're doing is adding noise and make, pulling us further away from the truth when you bring in people on the center right. Right. So I'm curious, you know, if we can agree that sort of the ideological kind of median in social psychology is this kind of mainstream liberalism. Do you think that that political ideology has blind spots that are relevant for our science? And, and if so, what are they? Uh, of course. I mean, every perspective is a perspective from somewhere. So, yes. But um I, I think the whole issue is is backward. What's what's foreground and what's background has been reversed completely. I think the problem we, we see social scientists or or so yeah, let's say social scientists, but you could say the same thing about scientists or academics are to the left of the median voter in the United States. Um, and, and so we immediately then say, well, why are they so far left? They're not they're not the same as the average person. And to me, that gets things exactly backwards. Um, because what we should be asking is why the average person uh, has so many uh, conservative ideas that are not, let's say, informed by social science or or climate science, for that matter. Uh, the, if if all, if all of society, I, I think what what you'd want is um, it, so. In all honesty, I think the question has been mis, misframed. It's the, the question that. Of course, people on the center right want to ask is why are social scientists so liberal? I think the real question is why is the is the average person so conservative? And that's what I'm trying to understand um, in a variety of different ways. I think it's a legitimate question uh, it, and it, it speaks to issues about resistance to change, why it's it's really hard to change society in fundamental ways, why it takes decades, centuries uh, in many cases to get uh, equal rights for women, equal rights for racial and ethnic minorities, equal rights for for uh, sexual minorities, uh, and so on. Uh, there's a lot of cultural inertia, and uh, so the discrepancy between the ordinary person and um, the liberal social scientist is it's the opposite difference that that needs explanation, actually. In my view. right. Right. I, you know, so to me, these seem to be like really different questions, right? So if you're focusing on society at large, explaining the ideology of the public, that's a really different question from, you know, narrowly within social psychology, how do the beliefs of the people doing that work um, affect the conclusions that we come to? How might like too narrow a set of beliefs in, you know, uh, too narrow in, in any sense, really. Well, well uh, yeah. Affect what we do. That I think is also a little bit exaggerated the extent to which we all agree on everything. You know, the, almost immediately when we get talking about these things, even among people who would, would find it hard to vote for a Republican in 2019, uh, there's plenty of disagreement over, over economic matters, over environmental matters, over, all kinds of things. We, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a, a canard or something to say that, that it's a monolithic, you know, liberal block or something like that. It's a strategy that the, that people use to try to, um, you know, discredit the, you know, the part of the conversation space that is where, yes, most social scientists are. 
Right. So in these conversations, I often think of um, Clay Routledge, who's a social psychologist who was um, a guest on our show previously, who would describe himself as like more moderate or right leaning, but really not in the way that, you know, where you think of like your stereotypical conservative. Right. So this is somebody who grew up in in a evangelical family that was doing missionary work in Africa. Right. So he spent a lot of his childhood there um, in his circles. Like a lot of the people who come from that background, they're actually like very skeptical of markets and capitalism, particularly like the effects of, of modern capitalism on social connection. Uh, they're often quite pro-environment, right? So it just sort of scrambles your expectations about the alignment of people's beliefs. Um, and I, I think that to me is something really interesting is that when we are around people who kind of broadly come from our background and who kind of broadly share our alignment, like our constraint on how different beliefs should line up, even if there's some disagreement within that, we it feels very reductive and, and to be honest, inaccurate mm -hmm. about like how actual people think, right? So mm -hmm. is that, it, it seems like you're, to you, that's not a huge thing to worry about, right? That we're maybe leaving people like that out. Uh, well, this gets back to something else you, you said before about people feeling bad or feeling like they, there's no place for them. I, that. I'm not, a fa I'm not in favor of anything like that. I, I don't want to ostracize anybody. Anybody who wants to be part of the conversation, I can talk to almost any about anybody about almost anything um, and usually find it interesting and, and in some way. Um, so I'm not talking about leaving people out. Um, Am I worried that we don't have enough evangelical Christians in social science? Not really. Um, uh, in, in, the, in the context of all the world's problems, is that one of the biggest problems that keeps me awake at night? No, I don't think it does, if I'm honest. Um, would I like to mistreat people like that? No, of course not. I want to treat them with respect and talk about our areas of agreement as well as our areas of disagreement. Right. So I guess, again, this comes back to a question of values, right? Like, and you're not, it doesn't make sense to tell people, well, you should be caring about this, right? You're allowed to care about what you care about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mickey, I've been talking forever. Do you want to, maybe you want to get in here? Uh, yeah, a little bit. So this is, I, I think we're, we're, we're conscious of time and, and John, you've given us so much of it. So we're, we're, we're grateful. Um, so I want to maybe, uh, I have a slightly tangential question uh, and then uh, one follow-up, maybe you, you all will be uh, completely off topic. Um, so one, uh, one, I guess, recurring theme in our podcast um, has been at least early on, maybe not so much, maybe not so much in the past six months, but it's been kind of this, you know, what it's, some people are calling the new left, right? Kind of a radical left um, where some people, um, leftists, liberals, to some extent don't feel at home with what some younger leftists, you know, are calling left. Um, so I'm thinking of, for example, like Brett Weinstein uh, in Evergreen College, who identifies as a Democrat, as a liberal, but felt that some of the um, some of the progressives on his campus were were going too far. Um, do you now? Again, I don't, I don't know you that well, John, but my sense is that you're an old school leftist, and and I think we probably share ninety percent of our values. Um, but I find that some of the stuff that I'm hearing from the quote unquote new left, I find some of it um, hard to swallow. So do you, does that resonate at all with you or do you feel perfectly at home with what, what's going on now in the new left? Uh, well, first of all, I, I don't even know what a phrase like the new left means. I haven't heard anyone self-consciously describe themselves in those terms. I think 
the, the bigger problem with the left is it's very fragmented and scattered. I, so I don't even see anything like a, a homogenous movement. I think they'd be more, a lot more effective if they could get under a, a single uh, umbrella <laughs> a term like new left or something. But so I don't see that happening. So what I see is people getting very, very frustrated uh, by what is a, a political situation that I think is kind of insane and crazy making. Um, so I'm not too surprised that people are reacting in kind of erratic ways to um, to a situation where, you know, apparently it's okay for the president of the United States to behave the way that he behaves and not just how he behaves now, how he's behaved apparently for 30 or 40 years. Um, it's there's something crazy making about this situation. And so we shouldn't be that surprised if young people uh, who are more worried about climate change for reasons that it's going to actually affect them in ways that it's going to affect much more uh, heavily than it's going to affect us. Um, I, I, um, I think we can understand, especially from a psychological point of view, why, why people are losing it a little bit in, in all kinds of different directions. Um, and I also think, of course, there's generational differences between people. And, and, and I think actually climate change has exacerbated that. If I were 20 years old today, I would be pretty angry at um, people my age and older for not taking better care of the future environment that they're going to be forced to inherit and deal with. And I would be beyond exasperated at the, at the inability for anyone, including the Democratic Party, to get anything done on it. Um, so maybe I can just like I I I make my question a bit more specific. Uh, so and this might maybe this is this uh, deals a little bit with one of your one of the people you spar with, Jonathan Haidt. He's made this argument that you know there's an intolerance on the left now. Then he calls it the liberal left, um, who, for example, um, don't want to hear certain things, who consider. Um, certain forms of speech violence, um, who want to deplatform people who want to say, uh, who have certain opinions and, and, and they don't want to hear from them. Um, now, I'm all for that when we're talking about a neo-Nazi or Milo Yiannopoulos, who's not that, but I, I don't want to hear anything from him. But there are other people who are maybe more uh, moderate than, than someone like him. Um, but you see, again, I think I think it's been exaggerated. I don't think it's it's nearly as problematic as John makes it out or other people make it out. But it does, there does seem to be some intolerance of certain forms of speech. Right. And but, yeah. yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's in a world where, let's say you're a 20 year old now and you have no control over anything in your environment and you've got someone who is probably the most powerful person in the world who brags about grabbing women's crotches and, uh, you know, has been having who knows how many affairs with how many prostitutes and paying people off and uh, doing all kinds of <laughs> things that, you know, were unthinkable uh, for an American president to be doing not that long ago. How can we be surprised if they try to seize control over their immediate environment, their university campus or their, you know, that lecture hall? They can't control crazy things at the level of the world and their own society. And it's, it's crazy making is what I'm trying to say. And, and in that situation, I don't think it's all that surprising that people are going to try to at least make their own little corner of the world, which they can have some modicum of control over, um, less insane than the world 
at large as they perceive it. Um, I'm not in favor of, of political correctness in that sense either, but I think um, Jonathan Haidt and everybody else has their own form of political correctness. They, you know, everyone is trying to tell everybody else what they should and shouldn't say and should and shouldn't think. And that's not a new thing. You know, the right cleverly came up with that as a way of discrediting the leftist opinions, but the right has their own ideas about who should and shouldn't be given platforms to speak. Right. So I, I think that's a really interesting take because it does um, imply really a testable hypothesis, which is that this is something that to some extent should be Trump specific. Right. So, well, yes, but Trump is also the manifestation of something that I think has been brewing. Um, and I think that, you know, George W. Bush, who now we look back on and think, God, I wish he was president again. But was he? Yeah, isn't he, that weird? As somebody it's who completely, remembers. completely strange. Yeah, it's crazy. But uh, but you know, it was already starting to look like uh, like uh, who knows where this world is going? You know, even even fifteen years ago, right? And now we've got just the culmination in many ways of of that, and we've got it writ large. It's 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 coming back in Europe, and I think the specter of fascism is real. I really do. I think that there's a real danger that fascism could come back. Uh, most of the people who really remember it firsthand are dead now. And uh, a lot of other people are, uh, you know, are seeing it as, uh, as a way of coping with the very real problems that they're facing. And it's incredibly dangerous. And that is why we need critical social scientists more than ever. Yeah, you know, I agree with that. Um, and we, well, cheerful stuff. And we could probably talk about it for another uh, hour. Um, but I wanted to get back to one uh, one last question, um, which relates to something you mentioned earlier, which is how should we interpret these replication failures? And I mean, I'm sure you've been following that there has been this upheaval in the field um, about reinterpreting old findings, about changing our methods, um, about how we should respond to replication uh, failures. And um, I, I'm curious just in general terms what your reaction to all that is and if it's caused you to change how you're doing your work at all it it yeah i think it's it's caused everybody to change some things about what they've they've done at all i I definitely am doing a lot more large n studies now uh whenever possible doing nationally representative samples you know it's more expensive but so it's harder to find funding for that kind of stuff but yeah for sure um I've also been doing social media, you know, research. So, you know, based on... Which I love, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Millions and millions of, you know, data points from Twitter users and so on to get around some of the small end kind of problems that we've had in the past. Um, and I, I'm hoping that our field will find some kind of reasonable place. Uh, I think it's already getting a bit more reasonable. Um, I think there have been some some shrill overreactions. And I'm, I'm not a fan of shrill overreactions by anybody, even people I otherwise agree with, uh, as we, it's just related to some of the other things we've been talking about. So, you know, I think we, I think we need to, I mean, I, I think there's, there's just many levels at which we need to address these questions. One of which is getting better at theory. I think, I think so far, all of the solutions are either statistical, which is which is good and valuable or bureaucratic uh, like pre-registration, which I'm not so sure that that's such a, a great thing. I sometimes worry that that's a bureaucratic solution to the wrong problem. Um, but I do agree that there, there have been 
too many false positives out there in the literature. There's been incentives probably for people to publish quirky stuff that's clever and counterintuitive. The emphasis on effects. Now, I, I, you know, to me, that's why we have theory. We, we need strong theory that's based on a wide and broad body of evidence uh, so that we're not just trying to demonstrate cutesy little effects all the time. Like that's to me, not what our field of, that's not what social sciences should be about. So to the extent that we, um, we move back towards a place of, uh, of building our conclusions on much broader basis of evidence, I think it's a good thing. But what I don't see, and this is what worries me is is I don't, I see people getting better at statistics and not better at thinking about theory or meta theory or philosophy of science. I also think we need to get a little bit past the Karl Popper kind of view of philosophy of science, just sort of like I knew it all along kind of thing. And I think we need to, we need to face up to the fact that, that discovery is a huge part of science and, and, you know, not everything that's important is something you knew all along or you knew, a year ago or two years ago when you, when you pre-registered something or whatever, I think, you know, we need to, we need, and we need to also, I, I, I thought Jay Van Babel and his, and his students had a very nice paper uh, looking at the role of social context in, in things. We also, uh, things are in Hungary, for instance, are not the same as, as things in, uh, in um, uh, whatever, Uganda, uh, which are not the same as in Wales and not the same as, in, and even things in Louisiana are not the same as New York City and stuff. So, you know, if we, if we can get closer to facing up to the, an understanding theoretically and deeply the role of social context and the phenomena we're, we're trying to understand, I think that will help us a lot too. Uh, so I, I'll send you my uh, critique of the Van Bavel piece, which uh, it's funny. It's funny that you bring that up in particular. Okay, I think we have okay. we have yeah. yes somewhat different opinions about uh, how informative okay. that is. I I mean I'm I'm definitely sympathetic to this idea that you know we without good theories um, we're it's going to be very hard to accumulate any sort of systematic body of evidence. To defend a little bit the yeah. focus on like empirical reliability, I think people would say like, look, obviously theory is important, but the the basis of a good theory is reliable observations, right? And it, to me, the the cases, you know, of of embodiment research where you know there was a very elaborate set of theorizing around that. But it was in service of explaining these like, you know, N of 30 between participant experiments where it was like stand on this rickety box or whatever. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I think history is not going to like, you know, evaluate those studies well yeah. be- because the empirical foundation just wasn't there. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know probably enough about that body of literature to say whether I think it stood on a solid theoretical foundation. But my impression when the, those papers started coming out was that it didn't necessarily and that that part of the reason it got so much generated so much excitement is because it was kind of counterintuitive from the standpoint of so many theories that existed before that work yeah i mean i guess so this gets to maybe my reluctance isn't exactly right but i think a real issue that you have to deal with when you're like we should focus on theory is that we don't have agreed upon rules about what a strong theory even is this is sort of like your your meta science point, right? Uh-huh. So I think the embodiment people would say, no, we're drawing on this like large body of literature from Lakoff and earlier about, you know, the embodied nature of concepts, blah, blah, blah. This is very theoretically rigorous. And 
you know, other people would say like, no, what, what you're doing is you're kind of spinning a post hoc story to like justify this like cutesy thing that you did. Right. So like and, and we can agree, I think, to some extent on what's empirically rigorous. Mm -hmm. Right. That there we have a common language. I, I think that their criteria for good theories, just as their criteria for good studies. And I think we need to get all, all become better experts in that. Uh, and I, I do think my philosophical background makes me appreciative of there being uh, good, better and worse arguments for theoretical points of view. And, and getting back to the earlier issue, even values. It's, it's easier to make a strong philosophical case for some values over others. And it's more compelling when you do so. So I think instead of suggesting there's like the world of empirics where we have criteria and there's other stuff that is has no criteria that's part of philosophy, I think rather than that, we should try to uh, learn more about the criteria that philosophers and other, others use to try to evaluate theory and discourse about values for that matter. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it also gets into how we define concepts, right? So often yes. in social psychology, right? Yeah, it seems totally. like you're just using a, right? Like this concept is floating around in the culture and we're just going to kind of sort of naively accept that that's a thing and kind of like write a few questions that tap our intuition of what that thing is, right? Without any like yes. serious interrogation of like. Well, that's why I did my ma master's thesis on Wittgenstein, by the way, because Wittgenstein thought that a lot of apparent problems in philosophy, including in metaphysics, were really problems of language. It was, it was confusions about the way people were, were using concepts. Right. That's beautiful. So we've just brought it all the way around again. Yes. To the I, I, didn't know how, I don't know how you guys do it, especially with all this drinking, but you did it. You know what? It's it's our special magic. Mickey has been trying to get a word in it. Uh, you know what? I don't think it's despite our great drink. It's because of our drinking. Um, okay. So I, I want to, I, like, you know, ask... Uh, you know, one follow-up question to this, and maybe we'll keep it in. We'll, maybe we won't. We'll see. Because uh, we're, we're we're definitely a little bit over time here. Is this going to be a homoerotic kind of a question? <laughs> as much as I would like it to be, it won't be. Um, uh, so you, you know, this is saying the opposite of a great truth is also a truth. Um, so I hear a lot about you know we need one of the one of the reasons we're in this mess we're in is because we don't have theory. Um, it's not a theory. We're kind of just loosey goosey folk theories and testing our effects. Um, I've also heard another argument, which I, I find increasingly compelling, and that is that, like, you know, fuck theory. Um, what we need is, you know, forget about a hypothesis altogether. What we need is just deep description. Um, we need to describe phenomena. This is like the Paul Rosen idea. Um, uh, describe phenomena, like, from, 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 from the ground up, you know, build it up, see if it's interesting. And then after we've spent a lot of time marinated in this, you know, what the phenomena actually is, then maybe we can see if we can control it, predict it, et cetera. And I don't know if there's enough of that in social psychology. Do you agree or disagree with that, uh, that other great truth, I would well, say? Well, okay. So... My first inclination is to say, no, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, there's, there's no such thing as, a, and I learned this from philosophy of science classes, you know, observations, theory laden. You don't even know um, where to look for the data, let alone how to interpret the data, if you don't have a theory that tells you where to look and how to interpret it. So it's, it's almost as uh, a, 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 a theory-free uh, uh version of science, empirical science is as silly as a value-free uh, approach to social science. You just, you, you can't do it. You're fooling yourself if you think there's no theory. There's, you, you can't, yeah, you, you, we just can't even agree on what counts as data. You have, you have a theory about 
blood oxygenation that makes fMRI data interpretable. You have a theory about uh, astronomy and, for that matter, glass that tells you, you know, how to look at the telescope and what to make of the observations you make. So you're never going to get rid of theory. Um, that's one reaction I have. But to be a little bit more charitable, it remind, there's a version of it that, to me, makes a little more sense, which... which um, Reminds me of a, <clears throat> I teach a, a course, a graduate seminar with Yaakov Trope on theories of social psychology at NYU, and it's great fun to teach. And one of the things we do is we have kind of debates and we do have this, you know, people debating opposite sides of things. And, and one of the things that comes up is what is the role of observations and data in theory building and so on. And, and so the point where I can see it being useful is uh, the case of, of someone like Darwin. Darwin spent years um, cataloging empirical regularities of you know, species, you know, wingspans of this and that species and uh, you know, what they eat and where, they, you know, where they're found and all these, like just literally taking just tons and tons and tons of notes, all empirical observations. And it was through that process that he eventually came up with this amazing theory of natural selection. And so when I think of that, then I think, okay, there's a case where, uh, not the, not fuck theory, but, but postpone theory until you have enough solid and reliable observations on which to come up with a good and solid theory. And I think that's maybe the best case, uh, we can, we can think of for that point of view. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know that I think we're in a place right now in psychology where we just need to write down a whole bunch of facts. I'm not sure that that's really my understanding of where we are as a field. Maybe, maybe, we, maybe we'd be in a better place if we'd started that in the 1700s. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. I think this, is, uh, this has been so interesting. Um, we've kept you way longer than we expected to and and thanks so much for being with us this has been super fun it's been by super, the way for me this too has been yeah. awesome. great fun yeah you guys are fun to talk yeah. to totally thank you so much well yeah. that's that's very nice of you and uh we'll you know we'll use that as your blurb for <laughs> please us, do actually. absolutely <laughs> if, if it can get you four more uh four more uh subscribers by all means right not enough dicks but great fun mm -hmm.